God continues to do some amazing things with this church. And, and tonight, um, we're going to basically spend a little bit of time casting vision uh, for what Bridgeway, uh, we, be, we, we believe what Bridgeway should become. Uh, we believe that Bridgeway should become a community of believers that will fight diligently for justice and battle injustice uh, in this world. And, and today we're going to see that, that God cares immensely about justice. We're going to see that God loves justice. And that, um, and that God does want us to do something about the wrongs uh, in this world. In fact, the fill in the blank on the back side of your bulletin is this. It, it's that we are called, actually, we are qualified. We are qualified to seek justice. I think sometimes we exclude ourselves because we're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not a judge and just, you know, judges seek justice. Um, today I want us to see that, that we are actually, as the body of Christ, we are qualified uh, to seek justice. And yet, before we get in there, before we start diving into defining justice and understanding what it really is, I thought it would be helpful to kind of give you a little perspective on how God's kind of put me together and why I believe that uh, I can be so passionate and, and so um, upfront about where we're going as a church in this area. Uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, my parents let me go on my first mission trip, and, uh, and I wanted to go to Nepal. Uh, because I was always fascinated with the Himalayas. I remember as a young child reading about Sir Edmund Hillary and climbing Mount Everest for the first time. And uh, I'd heard all these fascinating stories about the abominable snowman and the Yeti. Uh, and so these things kind of really fascinated me. And so I wanted to go to Nepal. I wanted to see the Himalayas. Uh, and I'd heard that it was just a fascinating con- country. So God laid that upon my heart. Uh, my parents encouraged me to go. I, I, I still can't believe that, that I was 16 years old and, and mom and dad were like, you can do this. We'll encourage you. But yeah, you step out. You do that, son. Uh, I can't. I, I still can't get over that they would. They would allow me to do that because, you know, I lived in a pretty. Now my mom's not here. Sheltered uh, uh, environment growing up. In fact, uh, in Santa Cruz, I thought you know my my closest association with what poverty really looked like uh, happened down at the Pacific uh, Garden Mall uh, at the clock tower. That's where all the, that's where all the homeless gathered, uh, knew several of them by name. Uh, but that's as close as I really got to really understanding poverty. And so I caught a plane, went over to Nepal, landed in, in Kathmandu, uh, hopped off the plane and realized very quickly that, uh, I wasn't in, in Santa Cruz anymore, Toto. Uh, we were, we were in a whole new world. And so I'm instantly confronted with these, with these images, and I'm seeing things and smelling things that I've never smelled before. And uh, it was my whole world changed in, of course, about 15 minutes of being uh, on the ground there in Kathmandu. Uh, I remember uh, working in this orphanage, and, and every day I got to see these orphans who had, in essence, been rescued off the street and given a shot at life uh, because these missionaries had, had opened and, and changed what was originally uh, they had originally gone over there to open a hotel. Uh, the, the wife had an incredible heart for the children on the street. And so when you run a hotel, what's one more mouth to feed? And eventually there got to be more orphans than guests. And they just changed the whole thing over into an orphanage. And so there were a hundred of these, of these kids, ranging from uh, about four until about eight, until 18. And, and these kids just ran everywhere. And so they would wake up every morning. Uh, most of them spoke English. They were getting a, a great education there in Kathmandu. But they would wake up every morning and, and they would sing the song, uh, This is the Day that the Lord Has Made. You remember that song? You know, good, good Sunday school song. Uh, I can sing that song in English and I can also sing it in Nepali still. 
That was a long time ago, but every morning I would wake up and these kids would be shouting this song and singing this song at the, at the top of their lungs. And I, and I remember it, and so I, I won't sing it for you tonight. I'll spare you that. But these kids made an incredible impression upon me because I saw kids that, that really shouldn't have any hope, that they really shouldn't have an inkling that God loves them, and yet every day they woke up and praised God for the day that was set before them. That was fascinating to me. And yet, just on the outside of the orphanage that I got to work in was the city of Kathmandu. And we were right in the middle of of everything. And right outside, there were other orphans that had no home. And you would come face to face with these orphans who were begging all day along in the streets. And you just went, these kids have no hope. You could see it in their faces. You could see it in their eyes. And most of them had been disfigured because if you could raise the level of compassion from people, you could also gain more money uh, begging on the streets. And so you would see kids that were missing eyes, uh, that were missing arms, um, legs, uh, hands, feet, uh, you name it. They've been disfigured in some way. The worst ones had been mangled um, across their crazy scars on their face that, um, unfortunately, many of them, those were given to them by their parents. Uh, Mom and dad didn't have any money, and so they saw that as a way uh, to increase uh, the income from from begging. Uh, You're instantly confronted with with these images, and they're not just images. These are people that you're seeing on the streets. I don't know if you've had that same experience. If you haven't, we're going to help you. We're going to help you have that same experience because it's important. We must understand the world in that reality because it is a reality. I've been blessed enough to be able to travel uh, in many, many places in the world. Uh, I, I've been to lots of, lots of cities, but I've seen atrocities in a number of countries. I've been to the Philippines and seen some things there. I've seen things happen in, in Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, Taiwan, um, Costa Rica. Um, the world is vastly different than what we experience here in the, in the U.S. Uh, I stood... In 2005, I got to stand with a group of villagers and hear from in their own words, in their own voices, that, that still trembled uh, eight months later and tell of this amazing tsunami, this horrible tsunami that, that ripped through their village and left everything completely decimated down to the, down to the foundation. Nothing left. And, and they still, nine months later, are, are trembling in their voice, telling the story of when this happened. And, and 80% of their village um, died. Uh, that day, uh, to stand there face to face with someone and hear them convey that story gives you a completely different understanding of the event than you can receive with Discovery Channel or National Geographic or because it's right before you. And it's not the story. It's fact the story is being uttered from the voice from someone who lived it and, and was there. I tell you these stories because I want you to realize that I believe over a long period of time, God has been been softening my heart, and I think in some very peculiar and very significant ways. I I, I believe that over that long period of time that God's given me an incredible heart for people that find themselves in some intensely uh, desperate situations. Um, When I left for my sabbatical this summer, uh, and just a sidebar, uh, thank you guys for, for allowing our staff to uh, to have sabbaticals. Uh, it's a vastly uh, important thing. We must uh, continue to do that. It allows for refreshment and rest 
and reinvigoration in so many different areas. Uh, it's very, very important. But shortly after leaving on my sabbatical, uh, honestly, I wasn't thinking about Bridgeway a whole lot. I was actually trying not to. And, and so as I got uh, where I was going, I was, I was in Kauai. And, uh, but God laid it on my heart that he goes, when you go back, you need to take, there's another thing that you're going to take on. And I went, God, this is really funny. I mean, apparently I'm not busy enough. Um, what, what is this about? And so it took me a long time to kind of pray through that. And, and over a course of several weeks, I found myself sitting uh, on a beach. And finally, the Lord said, as I was praying, I went, God, you've laid this on my heart. I don't know what it is. Reveal it to me. And not audibly, but the Lord kind of said, what bugs you? What bugs you? And I'm sitting there on that beach and I'm going right now and there's not a whole lot that bugs me. Um, but I thought about it and I prayed about it a little further and God allowed me to instantly put together a list of things that, that, that bug me, that, that really bother me. Uh, that list became AIDS, poverty, hunger, slavery, clean water, human trafficking, natural disasters. And I noticed that across that list there was a common thread there was this common thread that ran through them all, and that on some level there was a moment for injustice to exist in all of them. And so bad things happen in this world, and, and bad's not even the right word, right? I mean, really evil, dark things happen in this world. And some of them we're not even aware of, because much like as I left Santa Cruz to go to Kathmandu, we live in a very protected bubble. It really bothers me. But more importantly, it really bothers God. And that's what I want us to see tonight, is that God has this enormous passion for, um, for the oppressed, for the, for the unjust things in the world. He, he loves justice. And so here's some things that, that, that bother me. And, and just allow the stats to kind of hit you for a moment. Uh, today there are over 600, somewhere between 600 and 800,000 people trapped in sex trafficking in the United States. In the United States. And the average age of those is 14. Uh, we, we like to pretend that this happens someplace else, but it happens right underneath our noses. Uh, there's a well-documented case from El Dorado Hills, maybe you've read about in the, in the newspaper. Lance referred to it last weekend. Um, I talked to the FBI this week. It was an interesting conversation. They have a task force set aside that they've said that they, over the three-year period, they've arrested, not arrested, they've, rest, in essence, rescued over 100 girls from sex trafficking rings in Northern California. Um, in the discussion, I'll save you all the details, but the bottom line was the FBI, by their own admission, said, we're barely scratching the surface on this. It's more than we can handle. After drugs and weapons, human trafficking is the third largest and fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. There are over 2 million enslaved uh, children in the sex trade worldwide. That comes from UNICEF. And here's the killer. There's a, there's a million new children every year. Uh, as, the, uh, as the video this, uh, this evening said, there's over 30 million people enslaved worldwide. Slavery still happens. We, we so want to think about slavery in context of the American experience that, uh, you know, we think about the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, this stuff doesn't happen anymore. The sad reality is that it does. And uh, we'll see how cruel it really is. You get a flavor of it in the first three minutes. Uh, you understand it a little better when you see uh, the full documentary uh, in context. 
Uh, AIDS and malaria are huge issues in the world. Uh, those two issues seem to get a lot of attention and they seem to get a lot of, lot of funding as well. But the interesting thing is uh, that the top two killers of children under the age of five is diarrhea and pneumonia, uh, both of which are easily treatable. Uh, and yet those are the top two killers. Uh, AIDS in Africa is an enormous issue. Uh, there's over 32 million people living with AIDS worldwide and 22 million of them are African. Of that 22 million, 61% of them are women. And of that 22 million, nearly 2 million African children under the age of 15 are HIV positive. Uh, in Africa, there's 11.4 million children that have lost one or both uh, parents to AIDS. And worldwide, that number is estimated at 15.2 million. And by 2010, by the end of 2010, that number is expected worldwide to reach 20 million. So you see, that issue is getting worse not only in Africa, but worldwide as well. Uh, there's too many orphans. And then also, even before the food prices started to skyrocket uh, this year, uh, there were 963 million people who weren't sure where their next meal was going to be coming from, and they were threatened by, a severe, uh, by severe hunger. And now, because of those higher food prices, that number has now escalated to be well over a billion people. Uh, a billion people. What's the total population of the planet? Eight, a billion people find themselves in extreme hunger and poverty. And in that, 13,000 children under the age of five die from causes related to malnutrition every single day. Is this stuff not shocking? Uh, does this stuff not just you know, rattle your mind a little bit? Um, does it not allow you to kind of you know, take pause and go, God, what's going on in our world? Uh, and, and what's the church's response? Um, why, are we, why are we surprised? Um, tonight I want to take a look a little bit about the biblical study or the biblical mandate for understanding justice and doing something about the injustice in this world around us. And so um, tonight I'd ask that on your notes, um, take a note of the different uh, passages, the different references that I give you. Um, I'm going to move through them relatively quickly. Um, so you're probably not going to be able to kick, be, keep up in your, uh, in your, in your scriptures, uh, in your Bible, but uh, you can try. I'll give you that. Uh, if you're going to want to people who had to do some races back as a kid, you may be able to keep, keep up. Uh, but just make a note of the, of the scriptures, and you can come back and refer to them, uh, refer to them later. The Bible actually tells us that we shouldn't be shocked by such things. It says, don't be surprised. In Ecclesiastes 5.8, the Bible tells us that if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights are being denied, do not be surprised at such things. And so I love the frankness of Scripture. It's one of my favorite attributes of Scripture. It doesn't sugarcoat or candy coat very much. It comes from a, a, a reality and an authenticity of what life is really like uh, so often. And so the frankness of Scripture here tells us that don't be surprised. You're going to see unjust things happen uh, in the world. And so if we're not supposed to be surprised, the thing I think we have to caution ourselves against is, is kind of sitting back on our laurels and go, oh, well, you know, Scripture says that we're not supposed to be surprised, and I'm going to sit here and be firmly not surprised and, and leave it at that. That's, that's not what we're supposed to do. Uh, it says uh, that if we're not supposed to be shocked by such thing, the Bible also makes it abundantly clear that, that God is not blind to injustice. 
that God is not blind to injustice. In fact, just uh, a little prior to that in Ecclesiastes 4.1, it says, Again, I looked and saw it, all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. See, God is omniscient. He knows all there is that's going on in creation. We don't worship a God that somehow created the the world and then set it in motion and then withdrew uh, from his creation and is no longer involved in it. That's that's not uh, who God is. God is engaging with the world even now. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows the the heart and the pain uh, that the oppressed go through. He knows exactly what's going on there. He also knows the darkness and the hardness of the oppressor's heart as well. And so God knows very well what is going on, and he's very aware of the injustice in the world. In Psalm 9, it tells us that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. And so we also know that God loves justice and hates injustice. And he wants it to stop. In fact, most today don't even want to talk about a God of justice, right? Uh, when was the last time you heard a lesson entitled God of Justice? Uh, we love the God of mercy. We love the God of compassion. We love to talk about the God of grace. Uh, we love Jesus, meek and mild. Um, we're very familiar with that a- aspect. But where we get a little comfortable is when, when we allow God to be a God of justice, why do we become so uncomfortable with that? Why, why, why does that cause us to kind of stir and get a little, little creeped out? Why does God not get that authority? Do we not understand uh, his heart? Do we not understand why he loves justice so much? It says in Isaiah 61, 8, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. Or maybe more accurately and more succinctly, in Psalm 11, 5 through 7, it says, The Lord examines the righteous but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. No one wants to talk about those attributes of God. Not really often. And so God really hates injustice. And he's a passionate lover of justice. And scripture tells us that he delights in justice and, 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 and righteousness in Jeremiah 9.23. And so what are we to do? I mean, how are we supposed to respond as God's people to understand that if God loves justice that much and hates injustice that much, are we not supposed to emulate that which our Father is showing us? Are we not supposed to feel those same things? Are our hearts not supposed to break when we see these horrible things happening in the world. And when I say the world, I'm not talking over there. I'm talking right here, at least initially right here. I love that Bible spends great detail in trying to explain the... the, the hello. Uh, I love the fact that, the, that Scripture spends a lot of time going really deep uh, and trying to really explain in detail the intricacies, intricacies of, of who God is. Yet, I'm a kind of a bottom line type guy. I love it when scripture kind of takes a moment and says, eh, take all the details and put them aside for a moment. But what you really need to know is this. You know, uh, Jesus did that. And when they tried to, you know, kind of corner him and say, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, it's kind of like this. Love God and love others. Bang. It doesn't get any more simple than that. I like that. 
And I like Micah 6.8 that says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does, he requ- what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isn't it cool that justice and mercy are talked about in the same sentence? And, and walking humbly with God are all kind of fused together. These are not mutually exclusive things that somehow exist in a vacuum, completely separated from each other. These things are fused together. That if we really want to understand a God of compassion and a God of, uh, a God of mercy and a God of grace, we absolutely have to understand a God of justice. In the midst of a massive rebuke and correction on God's people, the Lord declares in Isaiah 1, he says, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the, the, of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And I think what we're seeing is that this isn't just a good idea, that, that this is actually requires action. It requires us to actually get up and actually do something. In fact, James 2 tells us that uh, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Uh, Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Those are strong words. Uh, These are absolutely things that we must do uh, something about. We have this biblical mandate uh, and we can't just do nothing. Now, the beautiful thing is, as I, as I say that, I can also say, I'm not trying to convince anybody here. We're already doing an awful lot of really good things that, that fight uh, injustice in this world. We're already heavily involved in Uganda. We're already heavily involved in Romania with orphans. We're already heavily involved in Indonesia. Uh, we're involved in places like that where, where crazy stuff happens. You know, we're involved right here at home at First Street School. Um, you guys, we're doing an awful lot. I mean, Operation Christmas Child was, it was an act of compassion and an act of, uh, of trying to, to right the wrongs in the, in the world by just allowing kids to have a good day. Um, that's perfect. That's perfect. So we're not, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm not saying that we're not doing anything. All I'm saying is that I think the vision for Bridgeway and for the future of where we're going is that we're going to do a lot more. And I mean a lot more. Are you guys familiar with the concept of cult of personality? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, The idea is that someone kind of becomes so popular and so engrossed into an environment that really they're all there is. That's all that people think about. And so we here at Bridgeway, we fight the cult of personality with with all that we have, uh, with all that we can. Uh, Unfortunately, the reality is that Pastor Lance has never been bigger than he is right now. Uh, and so this is a really good thing. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I think it's, I think it's okay. Uh, but it's a two-edged sword that we want to be very, very careful of and very, very cognizant of. And I think the mere fact that we're cognizant and so cognizant of it, uh, is, uh, it, it sets us up for, for success. And so notoriety is a wonderful thing. I'm not saying that's, that's bad. Uh, but Lance is very recognizable. Uh, people love him. And frankly, uh, he's a lovable guy. Uh, and yet a church cannot just be about a guy. Uh, that is, I've seen that go so unhealthy uh, so often in churches that, that enam- they become enamored with their, with their pastors and they place them on these enormous pedestals only to, watch them, uh, only to watch them fall. It's not a healthy thing. 
Or I've seen churches who place their pastors so high upon a pedestal that when they get a calling uh, from God to go someplace else, uh, that pastor goes and follows that as, as they are uh, commanded to do. And then the church that's left behind struggles and collapses. Now, I don't think that's a very good thing. I don't think that's very honoring to God. And so we don't want to see that happen here. And so there's a number of ways that you can fight the cult of personality. Uh, one is really into entertaining in the sense that you can bring another enormous personality on staff and let them duke it out. Uh, I like that. I've actually seen that work on occasion. Uh, but we don't feel like that's what we're called to do. Uh, we don't feel like that's, that's the best strategy for us, even though we recognize that, that we probably do need another, another teaching pastor on our staff at some point. Uh, we don't feel like that bringing another enormous personality on just to maybe kind of offset Lance. Good luck uh, with that. Uh, we don't feel like that's the right strategy for us, for us as a church. And so when I came back from my sabbatical, I sat down with Lance. And I said, here's what I'm thinking. I think we can fight the cult of personality by allowing our releasing our body into going off and attacking these enormous world problems that this body would be so passionate about things that are going on in the world and so uh, engrossed in, in understanding that they can make a huge impact into thousands of lives that, frankly, Bridgeway will be less about Lance and more about what God is doing. Um, how cool is that? I mean, and Lance is like, yeah, I love that. Um, let's, let's do that. Um, I think that is just the reality of where we are, that, that God, this is God's church. He's in control. Uh, it's not about Lance. And uh, we're going to fight this cult of personality as much as we can. And we think this is the way uh, to do it. We think that the best, best way to do it is maybe introduce something that's far beyond the cult of personality, far beyond any personality that would be on staff. And so what it is is you cast a vision that says we as Bridgeway are going to engage with the world. We're going to be salt and light in this world. We're going to help convey uh, the truth of the gospel uh, in ways that are very tangible because we feel like God's called us to do that. I believe that Bridgeway could become that place, that, that we would be known as that crazy church in Rockland that is engaging with enormous issues and sending teams all over the world and, uh, and, and actually changing lives and changing the world, that maybe we take on these enormous issues and we actually solve some of them. Uh, how crazy would that be? That, that we become known for more than just a place of discipleship, known more than just a place of incredible spiritual growth and great worship, I'm not saying that we're going to abandon any of those core values, because no, we're not. But what we want to do is increase our understanding of who God is by engaging with God in this environment, in this way, and fighting for justice. I think about generations before us. I think about generations before us that, that took on enormous goals and enormous tasks. Um, the World War II generation attacking tyranny from everywhere. That's an enormous task. I think about generation before us that, that put a man on the moon with less computing power than we have on our iPhones. Uh, does that not freak you out? Do you not realize how dangerous that whole thing was? Why couldn't this generation, why couldn't we right here at Bridgeway take on enormous issues like poverty? Why couldn't we take on that issue and, and maybe try to, try to solve that problem? Uh, why couldn't we take on hunger? Uh, the world makes enough food. It's just the world's biggest distribution problem. Why couldn't we rally some people here at Bridgeway and think really out of the box, maybe really strategically? Maybe, maybe no one's really attacking that problem appropriately. Now, why couldn't we maybe come up with a new solution and say, let's try it? I mean, we've got that kind of leadership here. Well, why couldn't we do that? 
What if we joined the charge to end slavery in the world? I mean, how incredible it would be that if there were 30 million less slaves in the world. I think that would be pretty cool, but what would that look like? And more importantly, what would that communicate about who God is? What would that communicate about who the church is and what it believes is important? Would the world then view the church in a different light if, the ch- if it was the church that had rallied together? Bridgeway and lots of churches like us got together and said, you know what? Slavery really bugs us. And you know what? We're going to get together and we're going to do something about it. The world would have to take notice. Would have to take notice. It communicates an awful lot about who our God is when, that, when stuff like that happens. Uh, what would happen if we organized and reached out to the 11 million orphan children due to, aid, to the AIDS epi- epidemic in Africa? What would that look like? And what, what would the world think? Again, what would that communicate about who our God is? Now, I'm a realist as well. I realize that's, that's dreaming there a little bit. Um, we're told that the poor that we'll always have with us, I understand that. But and maybe some of these problems truly are not solvable. But as we engage with these issues, we have to stop thinking about them in terms of being issues. We have to think of them in terms of people. And so maybe we don't solve poverty. Maybe we don't solve slavery. Um, but I've got to think from this church alone, there could be thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives that could be changed uh, in the process and maybe changed for eternity because we reached out and merely said, this doesn't sit right with us and it doesn't sit right with our God. I think that's a powerful moment. I think that is exactly what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Here's the other thing that I know about Bridgeway. I know that we have some really gifted and really talented people in this church. Uh, the leadership capability in this church right now is enormous. And, and some of you have come from other places. I understand that. Some of you may have come from other churches and you said, you know what, Bridgeway, I'm here. I want you to know that I'm here. I'm kind of hurt and wounded and I just need a place to rest and to heal and to kind of recoup a little bit. And recently, many of you have come to me and said, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Put me in the game. I'm ready to fire. I love that. And I think that and the timing of everything that's kind of occurring right now with next year being the year of servanthood, I think it all aligns in a really neat way to glorify God in a powerful way. You might be asking, is Bridgeway becoming an activist church? Hmm. It's a good question. It depends on how we define activist, right? Uh, If if by activists you mean, are we going to carry big placard signs and, and protest and yell at people? Uh, no, I don't think we're going to do a whole lot of that. I, I don't see a lot changing because of, because of those actions. I think on occasion they might be called for, but for the most part, I don't think that's going to be our thrust. Uh, if we're going to say that activist means that this church is going to actively engage this block in this neighborhood, in this city, in this region, uh, in this state, in this country, in this world, with the good news of who Christ is and that Christ loves them and he desperately cares about justice and he wants to rescue them from where they are physically today, then yeah, Bridgeway is going to be an activist church because we're going to engage uh, in that way. That, that we want to reach out with the love of Christ, with the love of Jesus, and to a very particular group of people, a group of people who have become victims by the abuse of power 
that's as raw and as simple as you can get when you want to define what injustice is. Injustice is simply the abuse of power, using power in a way that God never intended or wanted. And so what's it going to take? What is it going to take to change the world? First, it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage because when we talk about engaging with injustice, engaging with an abuse of power, that invariably puts you into a risk category. Now, everyone's going to have to evaluate your risk. I'm not asking that we go and do silly things and put ourselves uh, in ridiculously harm's way. But you know what? God is going to move upon some people to go and maybe do some things that aren't real safe. I think that's okay. I think God's big enough. I think God's going to move upon the hearts of people to maybe go to some areas of the world that aren't real stable. Uh, I think that's okay. Um, I think we'll continue to send some teams to places that aren't real stable. Um, You know, we talk about Uganda. Uganda is surrounded. I got to have lunch with Pastor Steve on, on Thursday. And it was really a recognition for me. Is so oftentimes we think about Uganda only about Uganda. Most of Uganda's problems are caused and are interrelated with all the neighboring countries around it. So Kenya is a mess. Tanzania is a mess. Sudan is a mess. Uh, all those countries... There's all these really complex tribal things that are going on that really influence Uganda. Uganda is a pretty safe place right now, but it's surrounded by chaos. Um, it may not be the safest place in the world. Now, when we go to Indonesia, we, do you not realize that we send people to Indonesia uh, to the most radicalized form of Islam that exists in Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country? Uh, these aren't real safe things that we are about. And yet when we send teams, we're praying for their safety. We're we're praying that God would protect them. And we worship a big God that can do that. And it's because people are important. If God calls us to go to those regions, by golly, we're going to go. And so it's going to take courage. And maybe that's not the type of courage where, where you're at right now. Maybe you're going, you know what? Me just going up to First Street School is going to take all the courage I can muster to sit down with a third grader. I get that. I get that. I have one. And I've been in her classroom. And I know exactly what's happening. Um, It's a strange environment. It's crazy. It's chaotic on occasion. Um, It's going to take courage on a number of different levels. It's also going to take some money. It's going to take some money. Now, this is an interesting one because I'm not here to ask for money. That's not what I'm about tonight. But it's going to take some money to do these things. And... um, Everyone kind of wants to sit there and go, gosh, you know what, guys, we operate in a new reality, a new economic reality in this world. And, and I'm not sure that's the, the, it's the right time to be launching into this stuff. But here's the thing, guys. We're called to be the body of Christ. I refuse to, to take and put upon the mantle the charge of Christ because things got hard, that things got difficult, that there wasn't maybe as much resources as there were um, 10 years ago. Uh, And the the vast majority of economic folks are saying, eh, it's probably not going to go back to the way that it was in the 90s. Okay. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, That may be a very, very good thing uh, long term. But I refuse to stop being the church just because it's hard or because it's difficult or because 
funds are harder to come by. Does it mean that we're going to have to do more with less? Sure. I think we're really, really good at that. Does it mean we have to stretch dollars and be very strategic with our budgets? Yes. I think we do really good with that. And I'm excited about what that's going to mean. The other thing I know about Bridgeway is that you guys respond when there's a need like crazy. Do you guys not realize how crazy our building campaigns are? You know how crazy it is to say, um, we need $650,000 to build this building, and we need it in about eight weeks. And you guys responded like crazy. Uh, That floors me. But even when we present something maybe far beyond just buildings, when we present a need for uh, to engage with Uganda, when Pastor Steve was here a few weeks ago and, and he explained you know, the need to support children and, and the need to continue to build the school, um, uh, you guys responded. You, that night, I mean, there was $8,000 given to Uganda that night. 8000 just right there from, from, from you guys. You know, and then the guys go up for their retreat and, and the guys jointly you know, say, you know what, let's pool our funds and we want to help Pastor Steve. You know, they pool their funds, $508 a month is what those guys came up with. That is enormous. That is a great blessing to Pastor Steve as he goes back uh, to Uganda this next week. We present the needs to purchase a cow in Indonesia. A cow. And we wanted to buy one cow, right? And so there was one small group that said, we want to take this $100 that you guys gave us and we want to turn it into 1000 so we can go buy a cow. And the cool thing is they did that and then like everybody else jumped on board and we bought 10 cows. Uh, and those 10 cows showed up in Indonesia recently. I mean, that's, you guys respond in phenomenal ways. And so I know, you guys, I know the hearts are here. I know that you guys are in this um, spiritually. I know that you're in this financially. I know that you're in this emotionally, and you guys are understanding where I'm coming from. 2009, year of Revelation. 36 weeks in the book of Revelation. How crazy is that? We saw God move this year in some fantastic ways. I think God revealed himself uh, anew to us as a body, as a congregation. Uh, we stepped out in faith. I think the healing night was, was one way that that was manifested, that we as a, as a relatively conservative church can come together and say, we want to trust God in that way. You bet. Our God's that big. Next year's the year of servanthood. The year of servanthood. We're going to understand more deeply and succinctly what it is to serve God and what it is to serve uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One of the things I'm really looking forward to next year, in the year of servanthood, we're going to gather together four times throughout the year. And we're going to gather together at our normal service times, but four times during the year, we're not going to meet and do church. We're going to go out and be church. Four times. We're just going to gather together. We're just going to you know, say, yeah, absolutely. Imagine what's going to happen when 2,000 of us walk out of this room on a Sunday morning and go and just be church. We're going to give you guys different ideas of things you can go do, different projects, different groups that may need help, uh, different people in this region that, that may be fighting areas of injustice themselves right then and there. We're going to go out and we're going to be church. I think it's going to be a powerful moment. Four times next year we're going to do that. And so you may be sitting here tonight going, okay, what do I do now? You've got my interest. I'm sold. I'm, uh, you got me. Uh, What do I do now? 
And so as I close tonight, I want to give you just a few things as you engage with this. First, I'm going to ask that you continue to educate yourself on the key issues around our community and around the world. I want you to find out more about the horrors of sex trafficking. I want you to learn about AIDS and why it's such a blight in Africa. I want you to learn more about hunger. I want you to learn that that hunger and poverty and disease is interwoven together, and it's a really complex issue. So continue to educate yourself. Secondly, consider going to Uganda and Romania in 2010. Consider joining those teams. I realize those teams go for a long time. Those are long trips. I realize that those are expensive trips as well. I, I get all that. I want you to pray about it. I want you to consider how the Lord might use you in Uganda with a couple hundred of those fun kids. I want you to consider how the Lord might use you in Romania to reach out to those orphans in those orphanages. I want you to consider going. Third, we're going to establish some new key partnerships. We have already got a lot of really good partnerships going. But I feel like we're called to establish some new ones. And, uh, and we're going to do that. Um, we're going to look at IJM, International Justice Mission, the folks that put together this documentary that we're going to watch tomorrow night. They are the leaders in rescuing children in particular out of these horrible situations. They understand that it's a balance of, of, of rescue and mercy, but also justice in fact, they are very interested in the rule of law and making sure that that is uh, enforced and utilized in these countries to its full effect upon the oppressor. And so they do both sides. They're excellent at rescuing uh, children out of, out of slavery, out of the sex trade, and going, we've got this incredible aftercare program. So we can start putting you back together, and we can explain that we worship a God who knows exactly where you are and hurts with you. We're going to take a look at an organization called Courage to Be You. Courage to Be You. Um, you guys realize that when, when girls are rescued in this area out of the sex trafficking world, that really the safest place for them is in juvenile hall? That that's really the safest place that they can be? And Courage to Be You has said, you know, that's not really the best scenario. Why couldn't we build a house for these girls? And so then the process of raising funds involving tons of churches in that process around this region, I think we want to be a part of that. We're going to take a look at Agape International Mission. Since 2005, they have engaged with Cambodia uh, like crazy and have been about the business of rescuing girls out of the sex trade there. They do some phenomenal work, and even as I speak, a member of our body is there mentoring not girls who are rescued, but guys who were perpetrators have served their time and have given their lives to Christ and they're mentoring and discipling them. That's phenomenal. I love that. Fourth, and here's where it gets a little sticky. We're going to collaborate as a church for the future opportunities that God's calling us to locally and internationally. So it's one thing to stand up here and cast this vision saying, guys, this is where we're going as a church. And we've got a few things figured out. We've got a few things that we're already doing. We're going to add a few things. But I'm telling you guys, our ears are open. The Lord is going to lead a number of you to say, this is another issue that I think we're missing. 
this is another organization that's, that's doing good work, and we should probably join. And quite possibly, there's probably some of you that will say, I've educated myself on the issue. I don't think anybody's approaching it correctly. I have an idea. Let's start something. I think a number of you will be doing that. And lastly, and certainly not least, I want you to pray diligently for the oppressed. We're going to make this a regular part of who we are. We're going to pray diligently for those that are in this world and are hurting physically, in pain, emotionally shattered people who live every day wondering if they're going to be beaten, wondering if they'll live to see the end of the day. We're going to pray for those people. And then I also want you to, as you're praying for the oppressed, I also want you to prayerfully seek how the Lord is calling you to be involved. This takes courage. This is risky stuff. This isn't something that we are just going to jump into haphazardly. This stuff requires a covering of prayer like never before. The essence of the gospel is a story of rescue. The essence of the gospel is a story of rescue. And we as the body of Christ have accepted and seen that rescue and said, Yes, Lord, I surrender myself. I accept your rescue. And God, thank you for it. We're going to communicate that same thing. We're going to convey that same story to the victims of injustice around the world. You guys ready? You guys ready? Just pray with me. Lord God, Lord, we're coming before you and asking that you would go before us even now. Lord, you've laid this upon our hearts. You have allowed us to see the vision of what could be. Lord, we see how important it is, not only from the standpoint of the Bible and understand that we have a mandate to seek justice, Lord, to to care for the uh, oppressed. But Lord, we ask that you would go before us even now, that you would show us the areas of this world in which we are to engage. Lord, we only seek to follow you and to know that, Lord, that that we are honoring you in our efforts to reach out to this world. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love our church and we love your church. And Lord, we'd ask that you would enable us, you would empower us to go out before you and to right the wrongs of this world, Lord, because we know that you love justice and you hate injustice. Lord, would you utilize us? We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.